First of all, the Lights and the Whitneys want to express our appreciation and thanks for your, the kind love offering you gave us uh, at Christmas. We appreciate your kindness and generosity to us. Uh, it's a pleasure to serve such warm and generous people like you, and we're grateful for that. The Gospel is from Matthew, the second chapter today, and I would invite you to stand for the reading of the Gospel of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Two, one. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me, so that I too may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. The story of the wise men or the Magi is a, a wonderful story about which much has been made. There's a whole tradition that has evolved around the story, much of which cannot be found in the pages of scripture even if it points to truths that are hinted there. Let me just summarize what some people think they know, but we don't know, okay? We don't really know where these wise men come from, other than the fact that they come from the East, which probably implies Persia or someplace like that, but we don't really know where they're from. We don't really know what their names are. Tradition names them Gaspar, Balthazar, and Melchior, but those are legendary names that arise from an Armenian tradition. You probably know that Armenia had a very rich early Christian heritage. The significance of a gifts? Well, we don't know what that is either. We, we find some significance in their relationship to the kingship of Jesus. Costly gifts that elevate and articulate the kind of person that Jesus already is in the manger. But scripture doesn't really tell us why these gifts are given. We don't even really know exactly when the wise men or magi arrive. It's after the birth, that's all we really know. Some think it happened the same winter. Some, some imply that two years have passed because they base that idea on the time that Herod issues his edict. And so there's uncertainty about the time that they arrive. We don't really even know what the word magi implies. Some believe these men were kings. John Calvin explicitly believed that was a really stupid idea. 
He used the word stupid in his writing about that idea. Others find in Magi a link to Persian scholars who started astrology. Some think the three were a mixed bag that teamed up somewhere in their travels. Some are Persian and some are Babylonian. And what we do know from the story is that there is the report of a star and given the prophecies that talk about light coming into the world and the rising of the star of David, we recognize that this Jesus, this star of David, is the light of the world. It's impossible not to link the star with all the words written about light. And it's also impossible, according to the way Matthew writes this story, because we understand that Every detail is recorded here, but the most significant details are recorded here. So it's impossible to miss from the way he writes the story that the baby Jesus receives two types of reception. From his own people, led by Herod, he receives violence and must flee. You heard the words of the scripture. When Herod heard the news, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. They didn't want anything upsetting the natural order as it was perceived at the time. The response of his own people is less than we would hope. From the Gentiles, from afar, however, he receives worship and adoration. Somehow, some of the Gentiles clearly see what ought to be plain to the Jews and perhaps this should be instructive to all of us. For it is easy for us to get caught up in our own opinions of how God must operate, that we miss his actual operation right in front of us. We expect a completely predictable God. He is not that so much, thanks be to God. Reliable, yes. Predictable, no. There's a big difference between reliable and predictable. Here's how the birth narrative in Matthew concludes. When they had gone, the wise men, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt where he stayed until the death of Herod, and so was fulfilled what the Lord said to the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious, and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under, in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Then what was said to the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. I think there are a couple themes in this part of the birth narrative that are significant and are, are worth our reflection this morning. The first deals with this quotation concerning Rachel. Rachel is used symbolically metaphorically, all the way back in Jeremiah 31, in the 15th verse, when Jeremiah cites Rachel 
as the mother or the ancestor of those tribes of Israel who are about to be carried away into exile. Rachel mourns for lost Israel. Her children, Rachel's children, these tribes of Israel are about to be carried away because of their sinfulness. She's not going to be comforted, Jeremiah says, because the people are going to be taken away. The land is going to be devastated. The temple is going to be destroyed. And all the things that Israel had come to rely on as, as the foundation of their faith, all those will be shaken and will crumble. This is the prophecy of exile or lostness. And Matthew draws a parallel to this. It's not just that these infants are lost. All of Israel is being lost because they do not embrace the coming of this new Messiah. It's easy to hear the prophetic message for us in this. Ignore the Messiah at your own peril. That's what Matthew's saying. Don't, don't be like those who lose everything because they ignore this Messiah who's being born to you. How can we expect to avoid catastrophe if we make the same mistake that Israel makes, the mistake of Herod, and ignore the presence of God among us Ignore him by pursuing our own ideas or our own goals, by thinking that we know better than everyone else, to think that, well, what we need most is the freedom to do exactly what we wish, or, or when we demand that God deliver answers to our prayers exactly the way we want them, regardless of what he's trying to accomplish in the world. I mean, we're in danger of ignoring God and turning him into a puppet that we think ought to serve us whenever we don't take this Messiah for who he really is, King of kings and Lord of lords, the one who has, by right, the privilege of ordering and directing our lives. If we will not recognize him for who he is, this leads to loss and weeping and exile. But when Matthew claims this quotation from Ezekiel, he not only claims the loss part, but he also claims the promise that follows loss. Yes, Israel's going to be judged. Yes, Israel's going to go into exile. Yes, the land is going to be devastated. Yes, the temple is going to be destroyed. But that is not the end of things. There is a promise of restoration. There is a promise of renewal. Horrible, devastating bereavement can be the first step towards restoration. It's possible. It's possible that we can be gathered back to our homeland. It's possible that we can turn our faces back to the Messiah. It's possible that we can be restored if in our stubbornness we had previously refused to recognize this Messiah. Matthew's citation of Rachel is the exile and what comes beyond renewal, new life, recreation in this Messiah. All of it comes together. Israel will return to its own land someday. 
The people of Israel will have the chance to kneel before this new Messiah at the proper time. The Messiah, in our immediate story in the Gospel of Matthew, will return to Nazareth in a short time. And there will still be opportunity to repent, to acknowledge him, to in adoration bow before this King of Kings. We have that same opportunity today to repent, to acknowledge the Messiah that has been given to us and to bow before this King of Kings in worship and adoration. I think it's easy to consider the days in which we live as incredibly evil days filled with violence and self-indulgence. Even though we're convinced that the sin of our nation will end in tragedy, we don't lose hope because we know the Messiah. We know that it is always within his power to bring a new day, to bring about reconciliation. And if we will humble ourselves before him and acknowledge him, his, his arm is not too short to save. He's able to bring us back. He's able to connect us again to himself and, and we can see the blossoming of his kingdom in our time if we will bow before this Messiah. I think it's important to remember that God will use us if we allow it. If, if we allow ourselves to be used according to his purpose, according to his methods, he will accomplish his will for us. And that's something to be excited about, to be grateful for, to hope towards. And I believe we should believe that in the new year, in 2020, God does want to use us. He wants to use each one of us. He has a purpose for us. And if we will yield ourselves to him, if we will acknowledge him and say, yes, Lord, you do have the right to direct my paths and I will follow you as you do, then we can optimistically assume that he will do just what he wants to do. That, that he who began a good work in us will carry it onward until the day of completion. That he will fulfill his plans for us. The second thing about this passage that has fascinated me for a long time and continues to fascinate me is the gifts that the wise men bring. Uh, these gifts have always given rise to speculation. Gold for kings, frankincense, a symbol of wealth, a rare perfume imported from the east, myrrh, not only a, a perfume or a scent used for preparation of the dead, but also something that was mixed with the anointing oil of the priests. Perhaps there's symbolism in all these gifts, but you know, I'm sort of a practical meat and potatoes kind of guy. And I just wonder if there's a more practical reason for these gifts. I mean, these gifts come at just the right time when a quick trip is required. Have you ever been in an experience where you needed resources and you didn't know where they were come from and an unexpected gift comes along and supplies the need that you had and maybe you didn't even have time to present the need to the Father? The Father had already answered that need even before you had a chance to articulate it, sometimes before you even knew that you were going to have the need to begin with because God provides for us in amazing ways. And, and I like to think about these gifts sort of in that way. 
Joseph and Mary can't have conceived the idea that they were going to be taking an excursion down to the Nile to Egypt. It was not on their radar. It wasn't a common trip in these days. It's a long, arduous trip for them. You understand the means of conveyance are not what they are today. And it's going to be an expensive trip. It's going to mean food and lodging along the way. It's going to mean a lot of things. And I guess I'd like to think that this is one of those very practical answers to a need that is going to arise because of the wickedness of Herod. I mean, how does a poor family afford a trip like this otherwise? Were the gifts of the Magi the, the gifts that make the flight possible? Are these God's way of providing for his family in an emergency? If so, God used the gentle Gentile wise men in a very important way, not only to demonstrate the acceptance of the Messiah by the Gentiles, but also to provide for the protection of his king and their family. The wise men offer gifts of worship, but perhaps God had other plans for those gifts even before they were made. It should not be lost on us, once again, that God uses not the Jews, not Christians, but the Persians or maybe Babylonians to accomplish his purpose. Like Cyrus in the Old Testament, God uses others to accomplish his purposes, even those outside the kingdom of God. God shapes and molds and brings his purpose to pass. It reminds me a bit of our theme verse for this church year. Remember Jeremiah 18, 5. Then the word of the Lord came to me. He said, Cannot I do with you, Israel, as this potter does, declares the Lord. Like clay in my hand, like clay in the hand of the potter, so are you in my hand, Israel. Personally, I want to know how God would like to use me in the new year. I want God to be able to presume upon me the way he presumed upon Mary in the new year. I want to be able to stand up to the plate for God in the way that Joseph did. I want that for me in the new year. And I believe that he has plans for us if we will pay attention to his spirit's leading. And if we affirm his right to invite us on to his potter's wheel so that we can be shaped. I don't know about you, but I am extremely optimistic about the year that's ahead. There are lots of interesting reasons why. Let me just enumerate a few of them. We expect in the year ahead for God to save people by the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The promises of scripture is that if, we, if Jesus is lifted up, that he will draw humanity to himself and that men and women will be saved. And so we expect that to happen in the year ahead. And we're excited about that. We expect people to be liberated from the chains of addiction, unhealthy habits, crippling unforgiveness, and heavy grudges. 
We take intentional steps towards that every week in the ministry of MCN. But we believe that God will do that. And so we're optimistic about it. And we, and we push forward with those plans because we know God's at work. A very specific thing that we expect, we expect to pay off the mortgage on this building in the year that's ahead. And, and we ought to be shouting when that happens because the very act of burning that mortgage will be a testament of God's faithfulness to this church for more than 30 years. And when we see the faithfulness of God like that, there should be a few shouts that ring out when that happens because we optimistically expect that God will accomplish that right in front of our eyes. We expect marriages to be strengthened in the year ahead. We expect God not only to hear our prayers, to answer our prayers. There's a whole range of things that we expect God to be doing because he has promised to carry on the work that he is doing in us. And as we are faithful to him, we know that he is going to work among us. And so we ought to be folks of great hope and of great optimism. You say, but Pastor, you don't know how long I've been praying about this thing. Doesn't much matter how long you've been praying about it. Your optimism isn't linked to the duration of your prayers. It's linked to the faithfulness of the one who hears our prayers and answers our prayers in due time. And so we trust him. He has proven himself faithful. And optimism should just well up in our souls because we know this Messiah who was born and who is our promise. It's my prayer that even though there may be hard times in the future, that we will join the wise men in adoration before Jesus. You know, we are starting 2020 without friends who have passed away in the past year, and that, and that brings a sense of sadness to us. And we expect there will be more of our number who will go to be with Jesus in the year ahead. But that doesn't create depression for us. That further fuels our optimism that he is keeping his promises to us. And no matter what the year ahead holds for us, he is faithful. This morning, I'd like to give you an opportunity at the beginning of this year, just once more, to express your praise and adoration to the Father. And let's very purposely begin this year singing praise and adoration and worship to Jesus for all that he is. Would you stand with me as we sing together in closing? Great is thy faithfulness. Great is thy faithfulness. Morning by morning, new mercies I see. All I have needed, the hand hath provided. Great is thy faithfulness, Lord, unto me. May you live into the faithfulness of God in the year ahead. May your steps be ordered by the Holy Spirit. 
May the Father presume upon you. May you stand up and be counted for him. Would you allow the potter to shape you, that you can be all that he desires you to be. To the glory of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.